0: Have to take into consideration at that time, a young woman, independent graduate student researcher going to certain countries wasn't tenable. It was a little bit of a bridge too far. I had to be conscious of that. And working in Armenia, post-Soviet era, women had for decades and decades under the Soviet system played prominent roles in scientific life. A woman archaeologist was not new or freakish. I could function there. I would get access to museum collections. I could interact with the Armenian men archaeologists, and it wasn't strange or weird. Armenia presented just a really interesting area of opportunity.
1: Before the pandemic, I got to spend a few days in Armenia at a conference. The capital city, Yerevan, has such a great vibe huge open squares leafy green streets, and awesome restaurants and cafes. And the roads in the surrounding countryside are in pretty good shape, and that makes it easy to jaunt out to very cool archaeological sites, like the Roman-era Temple of Garni, or Gegard Monastery, carved right out of a mountainside. But this is Armenia now, not the one our archaeologists got to know on her first digs. Back in 1993, after the Soviet Union crumbled, Laura went to Armenia with a small group of Americans to work on a site dating to 800 BC, an Urartian fortress near the town of Gumri. The country was in economic turmoil, and the only things plentiful were shortages. Shortages of hot water, gas, and food. In this episode, Laura talks about her first impressions of the country, and the reason why an Urartian fortress matters in history even if most of what the team unearthed still sits in crates in some building in an Armenian provincial town. Oh, and there's also the bit about the guy who asked Laura to marry him. This is Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. If you're new to this podcast, we recommend going back to start with episode one. For everyone else, welcome back. Let's jump in. Lori, what happened today? At your house.
0: So I was sitting on my front porch sipping coffee as I do every morning, and I heard a commotion kind of in the leaves off to the side of the porch. And I looked over and I saw that one of my cats was pouncing on something, which was pretty uncharacteristic for this cat. I saw that it was a juvenile copperhead snake, and I was like, oh, okay, so this is very close to my front door. The cat's laser focused on this. And then I watched the snake strike my cat in the leg. The cat jumped back. Clearly, he was startled and maybe a little bit hurt because he was holding up his leg. He tried to walk back and it looked like he didn't want to put any weight on it. That was like a lot to take in at that one moment. So I was trying to not get too close to the snake because when there's a juvenile copperhead, there are going to be siblings of that copperhead nearby. That was issue one. Issue two was, how's the cat doing? So I was able to get the cat inside. Immediately, I I called one of my brothers who kind of knows a lot about snakes. All right, what do I do? We gamed it out, and the solution was, look on Google. That's what I did. And, you know, wealth of information when you're in a pinch. I basically watched the cat and for, I looked for all the symptoms you're supposed to look for.
1: So you didn't suck the venom out of its leg or anything like that?
0: No. They actually said, don't do that.
1: Yeah. Why is that?
0: I don't know, George. Hmm. And then the, another one was, don't try to cut the cat to make it bleed. The, the cat was never going to let me do that. <laughs> so anyway, I kept an eye on him. He is 100% fine. After a few hours, he stopped limping. And was ready to go back outside. But it didn't solve the problem of the snakes that are probably residing way too close to my house. I got to figure out what to do about that.
1: Do, do you consider your yard a dangerous place?
0: No. Generally not. There's bunnies and raccoons and all kinds of creatures and evidently snakes. It comes with the territory, there are eagles
1: much like your job in afghanistan
0: yes 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 yeah actually kind of fair enough
1: okay yeah seeing as how we treated your yard as a microcosm for afghanistan why don't we dive right in
0: sure june 18th 1993 arrived today in moscow to cloudy weather The trip through customs was especially long, but I was relieved to see my luggage circle on the carousel in safety. One fear dispelled. The evening spent in the Moscow Country Club, a refuge for dignitaries and expats. Such a deluxe place with unlimited dinner and wine and beer. After dinner, we retreated to a sauna, which was perfectly relaxing after the flight. Evidently, an Armenian archaeologist arranged our stay here through the Russian Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. The assembled group seems fairly nice and everyone trying to impress each other with their studies and knowledge of Near Eastern archaeology. Such boring dinner conversation. The evening seemed to last forever, but the night sky was light all night long.
1: So last time we were talking about the time you spent in Armenia. Mm-hmm. Tell me tell me what were you what were you digging up over there? Oh, give it a little bit of context too though because this is not the Armenia of 2021.
0: No, hardly. Hardly the Armenia of today. I first traveled for archaeology to Armenia in 1993. That was shortly after The Soviet Union had collapsed. It was a very hard time for Armenia. They were blockaded on every border except for the part that they share with Georgia. It was hard to find really anything, fuel, food. This wasn't that long after there was a really devastating earthquake in the northern part of Armenia, so they were still recovering from that. And it was pretty poor, and I went to work on a joint American Armenian excavation. And I didn't know that part of the world at all. So it was very new to me. And I was also very junior in archaeology, like I was still wrapping my head around the discipline and the way one works as an archaeologist in the field. June 19th, 1993, Armenia, at last. I feel lonely now, settled in the hotel in Harome. There's no electricity, very little water. This will be our compound for the duration of the excavation. The last 24 hours have been more than grueling. Now that I have a moment to stop, I feel weak with fatigue, weepy. We started early in Moscow yesterday. and Saw very little of what I believed would make the city unique. Red Square, but only for the photo op, and then back to the airport where we waited for eight hours for the flight, only to arrive in Yerevan after midnight. So I remember showing up in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, by way of Moscow, which was kind of a trippy journey.
1: What do you mean by that? What do you mean?
0: I flew on Aeroflot Airlines. It was when you could still smoke on airplanes. It was just all kind of new, like you go JFK to Moscow on Aeroflot. I think we changed airports. It took 39 hours, the whole journey, and arrived in Yerevan in the middle of the night and was with several other Americans whom I had never met previously. Arrived in Yerevan in the middle of the night, was picked up at the airport, in the pitch dark because there was really not electricity and started a drive, which I think should have really only been about a two to three hour drive. And it ended up taking like eight hours because the van that was driving us ran out of fuel halfway. By the time we got from the airport in Yerevan to the city where we were going to stay to do the archaeology, I was like best friends with all you know, six, seven, eight other Americans that we were packed in this van and ended up standing on the side of the road watching the sunrise and drinking. I didn't drink at that time in my life, but there was a lot of bottles of vodka being passed around. As the sun came up, we happened to have stopped by the most beautiful poppy field I've ever seen. That's the the dominant memory for me. And That warmed my heart to Armenia far more than, oh, shoot, there's no fuel. The driver of the truck, of the van we were in, I don't know where he got like a cup of gas to keep us going, but he managed to. So I stayed there, it would have been maybe eight or ten weeks, so I got to know things. And we were on the weekends, we were traveling around Armenia and looking at other archaeological sites. I was getting to know Armenians and the food and the climate. And there's no hot water. Okay, well, that's fine. Just take a cold shower and things like that. And I ended up working in Armenia for a number of years um, after that time. And, and I ultimately did my PhD thesis on um, archaeological material from Armenia.
1: What were the sites like that you were digging up?
0: The particular site that I was working on was this enormous fortress site, Urartian, is the sort of civilization. It's an early Iron Age site, so B.C., about 1,000 to 800, 700 B.C., just to put it on a timeline. And it was just this enormous fortification, and then with the things that go with that. A palace room and storerooms and rooms where animals would be kept. Picture something the size of a, a soccer field or a little bit bigger, the size of this big fortified building we were excavating. And then off to the side were all of these Bronze Age tombs, which were fascinating because in a Bronze Age tomb, often the wealth would have been buried with the individual, at least in this instance. So at some point in the excavation, I don't know if I was banished or what, but I was told to go off and go excavate one of those Bronze Age tombs. I was sent with like a crew of five Armenians workmen who were really doing the heavy work. And I was there to take notes and do the lighter work. I wasn't wielding a pickaxe, in other words. And the tomb that I was assigned to excavate, no one could have known this in advance. It was empty. It's called a cenotaph. It's sort of like a placeholder for someone who died, but there's nothing inside. That was a little bit of a bummer. But overall, and to this day, I think of Armenia so fondly, and the food is outstanding, and the wine and the cognac that they produce, and Armenians are so warm, and in my experience, extremely well-educated, sophisticated. Um, I haven't been back, and I was actually supposed to go last year, but then COVID got in the way, and so I still have flight vouchers to fly to Yerevan that I'm waiting to use. July 11th, 1993. Haram, the cold water baths at the end of each day are getting tiresome. After the dusty work, I never feel entirely clean. The work is intense All the excavations, the observations The church we saw last week was spectacular But more so were the women who broke out into song As we waited out the storm inside the church The Armenian architect proposed It's flattering, but it seems so abrupt I only just met him a few weeks ago
1: Hey, so speaking of the warmth of Armenians, you spent a lot of time there, so you would have made friends, you would have dated people, I suppose.
0: I definitely made friends. And in the first season, so 1993, I was yet to begin grad school. So I was somewhere in between undergraduate and graduate studies. I knew I was going to NYU. I had already been accepted and I was heading there. An Armenian architect who was working on the excavation as sort of the site architect, he seemed to fancy me. And that was lovely. And I was intrigued because he seemed so exotic to me. It wasn't just that he he was a very kind and funny, interesting person also. And he was quite a bit older than I was at the time.
1: Paint a picture. What did he
0: look like? Well, dark hair, not very tall, not athletic in the slightest, very smart, and he seemed extremely resourceful, just like scrappy resourceful. He knew how to get things that were hard to find. And I think that was a way he kind of wooed me with, you know, showing up with products that were hard to find. I don't remember what those products were, but...
1: But maybe, maybe gas to get back to the city. Maybe
0: Yeah, maybe <laughs> gas. Or he... So I, I was a little bit skeptical, but I was also interested and I genuinely liked him. He ended up taking me all over Armenia and to these beautiful sites and showing me there's this one Roman site in Armenia uh, where he had done his PhD and... So he showed me that. And then he brought me to Moscow and gave me the cook's tour of Moscow. And he knew the city very well because he had gone to university and graduate school in Moscow. At the end of this summer, he asked me to marry him. And I was like, whoa, 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 slow down. And I said, you know, I'm not saying no, but I'm not saying yes. And I was like, I got to go back to New York and start grad school. And like, that feels like a little bit much.
1: Right. You're still really young.
0: I was.
1: How how old were you at the time?
0: I was 23 and Mm. he was 33. And so I said, you know, if you can find a way to come to New York and then we can talk about it.
1: Wait, did you mean that when you said that?
0: I did mean that, but I was ambivalent and I, I think in the back of my...
1: Like you'd be fine either way.
0: Well, I don't think I was that cold-hearted about it. But I also was... Getting married at that age was just not what I wanted to do. It it wasn't that I was anti-marriage. I just wasn't ready. Although I was intrigued because I was like, well, maybe, maybe this is my guy. He somehow through his resourcefulness, his scrappy resourcefulness, secured a visa when it was pretty hard for Armenians to get visas to come to the United States. And he showed up. And within a week, he was renting an apartment in Brooklyn from a Ukrainian lady, and he was reading the Russian papers that were coming out of Brighton Beach and networking. He ended up starting an import-export business and stayed in New York for five years. And we dated off and on The topic of marriage rarely came up while he was living in Brooklyn, and we were not living together. But throughout those five years, I was traveling quite often to Armenia at Christmas and spending summers there and to do archaeology or not to do archaeology. It might have been to hang out with his family. One day after five years, and I had just come back from my first archaeological season in Syria. I phoned him and I said, I can't marry you. And he said, okay. And he left New York a week later.
1: Just okay.
0: I don't remember his exact words. I might've written them in my journal, but that one's in a box somewhere in the attic.
1: Oh, you'll have to dig that one out and see.
0: Maybe. Anyway, he left. I never saw him again. I've never spoken to him again. I know he got married To a woman whom I knew in Yerevan, like lovely, lovely. She was also an archaeologist, is an archaeologist, or was. I don't know if she still is. And I think of him fondly, and I hope he's doing really well. And I'm really glad I didn't marry him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. There's that part, too. Before you take us to Syria, where would one see the stuff that you were digging up in Armenia? Is it in a museum today?
0: You know, 99% of what comes out of the ground during an archaeological excavation is not really museum display worthy. It's research worthy, but it's not the kind of stuff you want to put in a case that people are interested to look at.
1: Okay. Hold up now. (laughs) Because that just kind of blew my mind. Why? Because I'm not an archaeologist. And so I assume you dig shit up. You're like, wow, look at this gold statue. Look <laughs> at this Buddha. Look <laughs> at this extremely rare pottery shard right to the museum. And you're saying no. No. Why? Why? Say more.
0: If you're excavating at Nak in Afghanistan what I'm about to tell you does not apply because that site is so rich with the statues and the the kinds of things that you're envisioning. I mean, one better than the next. Oh, this one is painted in rare pigments. Oh, that statue from Messinac is gilded in gold. Oh my gosh. But that's the exception. The vast majority of archaeological sites, what, archaeologists are looking for is information about how people lived. Those remains are not that interesting. So it's bucket after bucket after bucket of broken pottery sherd, okay? No one wants to look at that in a museum. Or little bits of stone tools, okay, might be interesting for someone interested in stone tools, but the Metropolitan Museum is not going to put that in a museum case. The vast majority of what would have been excavated the material, the artifacts while I was working in Armenia are probably still in crates and boxes in the Academy of Sciences Institute of Archaeology in Yerevan, or they might be in an office in the city Gumri, which is the the closest city to the archaeological site. That's just how it goes, George. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not, what's that, like the lost ark of the covenant. That's Rare.
1: So, what then did you learn? If it was largely a, a forensic dig, oh, to to understand more about how people were living and dying at the time, what did you walk away knowing or learning?
0: You understand Urartian architectural styles. You understand how they built their fortifications, the orientation of the buildings, and where certain threats may have been coming from east west north south and then that tells you something about the larger political context of the time you learn about the economy of the place based on how fancy their ceramics are i don't know if you have your fancy plates and dishes that you use at holidays plus your everyday stuff that means that you have a certain level of wealth that you can afford two sets of dishes or your sterling silverware that you only use on holidays and then your regular everyday stainless steel stuff. All of these things, they, they provide information that then helps you understand a story about a larger economy and a, a community, a culture, a civilization. It depends on the scale that you're trying to understand things. Or you might find artifacts that come from Very far away, if you were to find lapis lazuli, that beautiful blue stone that's mined in Afghanistan, if you were to find, say, some beads for a necklace that were carved from lapis lazuli at this site in Armenia, you would know, oh, there are trade routes. And so let's look at this bigger interconnected economy If there's objects trading, then there are ideas also trading and influences. That's mostly what archaeologists are interested in, whether it's in Armenia or Jamestown, Virginia, or in Greece or, you know, in Sicily. Take your pick. China? The possibilities are endless, George. Cool.
1: Well, we've got to explore more endless possibilities. Hey, earlier you were talking about how you kept diaries all along the way. When do you first start keeping a diary?
0: Don't you keep a diary?
1: <laughs> I'm too lazy to write about my day, especially since most of my days are just so horribly dissatisfying. Oh my God. I didn't just say that. I have a two-year-old. I have to take that back right now. <laughs> Before I was a dad most of my days were too boring, mundane, and dissatisfying to want to revisit them by writing about them at the end of that day. Mm. How's that? Did I make up for that?
0: Pretty much. Okay. So I started keeping a diary when I was a girl. I was probably around 10 years old. I probably got a blank journal as a gift one year. I guess I was inclined to to write stuff. So I would just write, I don't really remember much of what I wrote at that age, but I do remember writing and pretty consistently all through high school and well into college. It's just something I've always done. I don't write every day. Sometimes weeks, months will go by in between my writing something. It might be something that happened that day that seems significant at the time. I might write lyrics from a song that I really like or a turn of phrase in a book or a magazine article that is meaningful to me, I might write that down. It's just a way for me also to write about my feelings about things and it helps me process them. By writing them down helps me work through blind spots and struggles and hard things And grief and Mm. love.
1: And I get that. I get that. Is it odd, though, to reread diary entries from back in the day? It's almost like you're being a voyeur on your own life.
0: It is weird. Until we started doing this podcast, I had decidedly not reread anything I had written for the first two years I was in Afghanistan. And that journal was so heavy and significant for me mm-hmm. that I I wrapped it up and I tucked it away. Like I'd only used maybe like half of the pages, so I hadn't even filled the whole thing up. And I was like, I got to put this one away and start with a brand new book, like a brand new empty blank page book. It wasn't until we started doing this podcast that I started reviewing my journal from the year and a half or so that I spent in Kabul, some days I did not like rereading it at all. It reminded me of some really hard things. And it also reminded me of some events and things I had done that I had totally forgotten about. Like, oh, I forgot that time we were stuck in a minefield. I guess I'd blocked that out. But then I remembered when I read it in my journal. So... I still keep a diary um, now. It sits on my desk. I recommend it, George. Yeah? Can't hurt. Maybe. You're a writer. You're a writer by nature.
1: Yeah, but I'm not a fan of my own writing. I always think that everybody else writes far better than I do, so what's the point?
0: Hmm.
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch, also follow us on Instagram at The Monuments Woman. Join us next week when we dive deeper. This show is produced by Christian D. Brun and May 11 Projects. It is recorded by Audovida Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song is This Love by Ariana Delawari featuring Solar Nader. Produced by Vita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.